I want you to open your Bible to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to give our attention to verses 1 through 5. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we've come again to your word, and we're asking you, Lord, to make it alive to us. Help us to see in it that which is glorifying to you, helpful to us. Lord, we want to to see the truth, to know it, to walk in it. We want to be useful to one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Help us to understand from these verses what it means to fulfill the law of Christ and to love one another and through bearing burdens and sharing both the difficulties and joys of this life. Lord, help us to know what we are alone responsible for, that load that we each shall bear before you. Lord, we ask for your help in these things, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 16 of chapter 5, Paul issued this command. He said, I say then, walk in the Spirit. And he attached to it a great incentive to do just that. The incentive is that in walking in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He then goes on to mark out the two systems and distinguish between them the two systems being the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. He contrasts these, and from that we gather that Paul did not expect the Spirit of God to lie dormant in the life of a believer. There is really no fall nor winter season of dormancy in the life of a Christian. That's not to say that there aren't Moments where we fall into sin. That's exactly what Paul is dealing with here in verses 1 through 3. Where the Spirit of God is, He makes Himself known. He produces in us things that only He can produce. And it's interesting here that Paul says that the works of the flesh have the opposition of the law of God. When he details for us the works of the flesh, things like adultery, fornication, you can immediately attach in your mind those aspects of the law of God that blatantly forbid such things. But when speaking about the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says there is no law against these. But there is great expectation that believers in Christ will in whom the Spirit dwells, will employ this multifaceted fruit of the Spirit in service to one another and in service to the Lord. We see this in the 25th verse. If you'll look at it in verse five, chapter 5, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And then there's a negative and a positive aspect of walking in the Spirit. The negative aspect is, verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And then the positive aspect of walking in the Spirit, which we've already read, verses 1 through 10, really, but we're going to deal with the first five verses. It is in restoring one another and bearing one another's burdens and sharing in all good things, and doing so generally, and then in a very general way, doing good to all and especially to those 
who are of the household of faith. And so we might say that the context of these verses is Christian living in general. And if you are a how-to kind of person, if you like for the scriptures to tell you how to do the Christian life, then these verses are for you and they're for me. But remember, it's not just the outward aspect of the Christian life that is expected of us. Outward activity is easy. The outward activity of the Christian life can be performed in hypocrisy. It can be performed in pretense. It's not the outward aspect alone that is expected, but the outward activity born and sustained out of a heart filled with love for Jesus Christ and for his people. Keeping this same thought in mind, what we read here in these first five verses is very much the spiritual life. So much these days is said about spiritual life. What does spiritual life consist of? We know its beginning is being born again. We know its beginning is is being born again of the Spirit and having the Spirit of God come and dwell in us. But what is the spiritual life after that? What does it look like? And again, we shy away from the mystical aspects of Christian life. Christian living and spiritual life. And we look at these verses and what we find here is that the spiritual life can be observed, can be seen. It is something that can be grown in. We can further our sanctification and thus further along our spiritual life. But I want you to note something before we get involved in these verses. And this is an important aspect of this and one that is going to govern how we view these verses and the expectation that is placed upon us in them. And I'm going to quote directly so I don't misspeak. The Holy Spirit does not produce this fruit for our private enjoyment. True spirituality is not an individualistic quest for self-fulfillment. The life of the Spirit flourishes for the sake of others. Therefore, true spiritual life does not grow in isolation, but within the community of faith. You can't read this paragraph without realizing the truth of that statement. And as we think of the spiritual life or the fruit of the Spirit manifested in my life as an individual, this illustration proves to be helpful It is less like a fruit tree hidden away in your private secret garden and more like a fruit tree that grows in a public park that anyone can come and select fruit from for their own sustaining. But yet how contrary is this to much of what we hear taught about true spirituality Much of what we hear taught, and it's not just in our current day. You can go back in in ancient days and find things that will correspond to this. Much of what you can hear taught is things that benefit you, you, you. And that you are expected to grow in the spiritual life for your own benefit. So that you can have your best life now. To quote the title of the Joel Osteen book, which is filled with untruth. If this is our best life, God help us. We're looking for something greater. We're looking for something that is more full. We are looking for something that is lasting, something that is really eternal. True spiritual Life does not grow in isolation, but within the community of faith for the good of the community of faith. These verses that we're going to deal with this morning are centered around this idea of fulfilling 
the law of Christ. That's a desire and a quest that I suppose every Christian in the room desires to perform. How could we not want to fulfill the law of Christ? We need to understand what the law of Christ is. It's application to us. All of these are things that we, Lord willing, will consider this morning as we go through these verses. One other statement in in regard to an introduction before we get into verse 1. So far, Paul has described the Christian life in various ways. He said it's, first of all, a life of liberty, verses 1 through 5 of the fifth chapter. It's a life that is to be lived under the control of the Spirit of God. We've dealt with that recently in verses 16 through 26. Here he portrays the Christian life as a life of love. Love to God and love for your neighbor. and Specifically, love for the people of God. Love has already been mentioned in this chapter, chapter 5, as being a characteristic of saving faith in the 6th verse of chapter 5. It is also the channel through which we serve one another, the 13th verse of chapter 5. It is the fulfillment of the law, the 14th verse of chapter 5. And it is an, it, it is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit produced in the life of a believer, the 22nd verse of the fifth chapter. And so while the word love is not particularly found in these verses this morning, we understand that the actions described must be prompted by it, must be prompted by love for one another and primarily for Christ. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 6 that deals with, and this is my first point, restoring an overtaken brother or sister. The restoration of one overtaken in sin. Now let's deal with the implication before we look at the prescription. The implication is simply that Christians can and do fall into sin. The war within that we've looked at in recent weeks, beginning in the 16th verse of chapter 5, is real. The flesh does indeed lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Temptation is strong. The flesh is weak. Thus, the necessity of walking in the Spirit. So heed this warning of Scripture. No one is immune to falling into sin. No one is so sanctified in this life that you cannot be overtaken in sin. All are suspect. All are suspect. All are exposed to strong temptation. The reason being because all of us have remaining sin in our life. We're free from its power, yes, but it's still there nonetheless. And far too often we choose to obey it. If it were not for the grace of God, can you finish that sentence? There's lots of different ways to finish it, isn't there? These words, there but for the grace of God, go I, are attributed to John Bradford, who was a martyr, and he saw another one of his brothers being executed. He exclaimed out loud, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. And soon he would follow in a martyr's death. But those are words that we can take to ourselves, aren't they? When we look at a brother or sister overtaken in sin, part of the gentleness or meekness in which they are to be dealt with, which we'll talk about later, is to realize there, but for the grace of God, go I. I am not immune to the same type of temptation that has come to them and that they have fallen into. 
All of the words of this verse are important. Every single one of them. Brethren. This word is important because it speaks to the family life of believers, yes. But the fact that, I've already said, a Christian can fall into sin. The word overtaken is an important word. This does not refer to a deliberate, willful, premeditated sin. This is an important distinction. This is not a sin that you sit at home contemplating how you were going to fulfill its lust. This is a sin, that, and it, this word refers to a sin against better judgment that takes one by surprise or comes on by sudden impulse. Matthew Henry says, This is to be brought to sin by the surprise of temptation. This is to find yourself at the end of the day having committed something against a brother or a sister, against your wife, against your children, against a co-worker, against your own conscience. It's to find yourself at the end of the day having committed something that was not even in your mind at the beginning of the day. You've been overtaken. Just like the woman was caught in adultery. This word has an aspect of that meaning as well. It means to be ensnared. And it begs, it begs that safeguards of all kinds be implemented in your life as a Christian. There's no coincidence, obviously, that Paul details for us in the sixth chapter of Ephesians what the armor of God looks like. And how effective it is in the life of a Christian as we are seeking to do this very thing of walking in the Spirit. If anyone is overtaken, if anyone is ensnared in a sin that has caught you by surprise, it's like walking through the forest and stepping in a snare and immediately it comes upon you. You didn't see it coming but yet the effects of it and the consequence of it is real and maybe even doing real damage to your witness, to your testimony, to life as you have known it. So be duly warned that as a Christian you can fall into this kind of sin. Perhaps it's the very sin that is mentioned as being the works of the flesh. In that sense, we talked about this even this Wednesday evening. Think of David sitting on the roof during the time when kings were to be out to battle. And what did he see? What he saw, he went after and it led him down a road of heinous sin before God. So much so that if you go and read that entire account, the consequence of that sin would never leave his house. Sons affected by the consequence of that sin. He was ensnared in it, and it took the prophet of God coming to him in gentleness, meekness, sternness, to get him out or to make him come to his senses concerning that sin. Before we look at who is to do the restoration, I want to look at the restoration itself. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore. The word restore here refers to the setting of a broken bone. If any of you have ever had a broken bone and had it set back into place, Or if you've had a joint that has been dislocated and you have had someone come alongside you and pop it back into place. This is what this word means. It means to the implication here is to put the sinner back in order. 
And everything here is constructive. Everything here is done intentionally. Everything done is done in love and for the good and restoration of the one having fallen into sin. Curtis Vaughn goes so far as to say that this is not a single act, but it is a progress because of the tense of the verb. Restore such a one. Present tense means that this is an activity that may take some time. This is not a one conversation, probably not a two conversation, but this is a pouring of your life into someone else in gentleness that the Lord may use to awaken them to the condition that they have found themselves in. Restore them. Part of this restoration, according to Matthew Henry, is a convincing of sin. Obviously, we need the help of the Spirit, but the Spirit needs a mouth. And it just might be yours, and it just might be mine. It's a convincing of sin, a returning to duty, and then a comforting and even a pardoning mercy. All of this is what it means in this one word, restore. Set the joint, set the bone, do so with skill, do so with conviction, do so with a sense of duty, but do so in an attitude of concern and comfort for the one that has found himself ensnared in sin. Now, we can answer the question, Who is to do this work? And I think the question immediately comes to my mind, who is sufficient for these things? And all of us can say, in and of ourselves, and our own strength, no one is sufficient. But I want you to see something. This is an expectation placed upon all believers, not just, there's no mention of the pastor, the elder, the deacon, It just says, you who are spiritual. And then there's some qualifications given we're going to look at. But I want you to see, first of all, that this is a work that is expected of everyone who fits the qualifications of being spiritual. There is some level of maturity, yes, that is needed. But it's something that every believer should strive to be used of God in at some point. But we have to be on our guard This is not the work of one who has a critical spirit. This is not the work that sees every sin that a believer commits as one that needs to be boldly confronted. This is the work of one who understands the seriousness of the situation and that he or she is being used of God, hopefully, to restore one who has gone off the way. One who has fallen prey to temptation. It refers to someone, I believe, in context who is walking in the Spirit. That command is given twice, verse 16 and then in verse 25. The one who is spiritual in the first part of chapter 6 is one who is making real progress of walking in the Spirit. It is someone who has the fruit of the Spirit readily displayed on the tree of their life and is making real progress in the battle against sin. Here are the qualifications that are given. This work must be performed in a spirit of gentleness. This is the exact same word that's used to describe the fruit of the Spirit in verse 23. The fruit of the Spirit is, one aspect, gentleness. So if you are spiritual and you see your brother or sister having fallen into sin, the first thing that you must do is be gentle. Anyone can browbeat another brother or sister. Anyone can point the finger. But it takes a spiritually minded man or woman to see the real danger and to see the real snare of sin and be willing, first of all, but then also able to come along in a gentle manner. To say it the way Paul said it in Ephesians is to speak the truth, but yes, do so in love. In a spirit 
of gentleness. Some of your translations have here the word meekness. That's the first qualification of the spiritual one in mind here. The second qualification is this. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That put into plain language, realize that you and I are as prone to fall into sin, maybe the same particular sin that needs to be dealt with as anyone, and maybe more so. It's to take to heart Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And it's also considering this thought. Isn't it hard not to feel self-righteous when pointing out sin in someone else? We have a tendency. Every one of us have it. We have to deal with it. The tendency is to exalt ourselves just a little bit because, hmm, I haven't been overtaken in this sin yet. And, but for the grace of God, I may very well be. It's hard not to feel self-righteous when pointing out sin in someone else. You remember what Jesus said? Before you address the speck, deal with the plank. Before you deal with the little piece of dust in your brother's eye, deal with that log that is hanging out of your own. So the qualifications of one who is spiritual, one who is fit for this task, is one who will perform this function of body life, and this is a function of body life. A church is weak that will not that does not have members who will engage in this type of activity. I realize everyone wants to shy away from it. I think that's a a natural, even beneficial initial response, but yet there must be these spiritually minded members who in gentleness will take on such an endeavor. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. This is not the work of one who is conceited, not the one who is self-delusional. We're going to see that here in just a moment. But this is the first part of real spirituality, real Christian living in the context of a body. Sin in brothers and sisters is dealt with gently. Now we're given other instructions. We could look elsewhere. If someone sins against you, what do you do? Go to them privately first. Plead with them. And if there is a refusal then there reaches a point to where that sin is to be brought before the church. We call that church discipline. It's a real thing. It's a biblical expectation and requirement of a New Testament church. Let's move to the second point of this in the second verse. The second aspect of spirituality, real spiritual life and Christian living in the context of body life is the bearing of one another's burdens. Here again, let's notice the implication first. And the implication is 
that Christians will have burdens. They come in various forms, to varying degrees. But we are not exempt from having real burden. And thank God, we are not exempt from having real help to bear them. Obviously, first from Christ, second from the body. And we have to see that part of the way, a large part of the way that Christ helps bear our burden is through his people. The word bear here means to lift, take into yourself, and carry. This is not the work of one who is selfish for their own freedom, selfish with their own time, selfish with their own resources. This is the work of one who recognizes that there is a time in life when there is the expectation of Christ placed upon you that you will go and bear someone else's burden, that you will pick up part of the weight and carry it on your own. Now, the applications of that are are immense. Perhaps it's a financial burden. Perhaps you have the means, your brother and sister is either destitute or in need, your part of bearing that burden is to take the responsibility to share with them of the abundance that God has given you. Perhaps it's prayer. Perhaps it's an encouraging word. Time after time after time after time after time again. Perhaps it is giving of your time over and over and over and over again. Taking unto yourself the burden of a brother or sister, picking up part of that weight and carrying it is going to necessitate that you and I give of ourselves. And one has described this, this is less like setting the bone and more like carrying the stretcher now. The bone has been set, or at least attempted to be set. Now, reach down and pick up the weight and carry the one with the broken bone. Bear one another's burdens. And this is not discounting. Paul here is not discounting the burden-bearing ministry of Christ in your mind and mine, your life and mine. It is very true, thank God, it is true that Christ has borne our greatest burden on Calvary's cross since that is true. Since He has carried our greatest burden already, can we not trust Him with the lighter burdens? We can. We are to cast our burdens on Him knowing that He cares for us. Knowing, that also, knowing also that part of the way he cares for us is through other believers. This is spiritual life lived in the context of the body of Christ. But notice what Paul says. He says, when you bear one another's burdens, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. So what is this law? We have the law of Moses. We know that well, don't we? Summarized in the Ten Commandments. First half deals with our relationship to God. Second half deals with our relationship to one another. Different ways of understanding this law of Christ. Some see this as a reference to the moral aspect of the law of God. And that is the more, it is the moral aspect of the law of God that Christ upheld in his public ministry. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard said, but I say to you, each one of those he exalts, he raises the standard that was given in the law of Moses. 
Some see it as the teaching of Jesus in verses like John 13, 34, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also are, that you also love one another. Again, he repeats this in John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And upon hearing the question, What's the greatest commandment? Jesus answers by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. And this fits in the context of Galatians chapter 6 where we are to love the one who has fallen into sin. We are to love the one with the burden. And there again, how do we love? Then the moral aspect of the law of God comes into great play here, doesn't it? We love one another by not lying to them, not stealing from them, not coveting what is theirs. And you can run through the whole list. But all of these things considered, Curtis Vaughn, you know my... My, my great love for him. He helps me the most in understanding this when he says this reference to the law of Christ may indeed mean the moral teachings promulgated by Christ. But the expression is intended to contrast the legalistic system of the Judaizers mainly in this. Their system involves submission to a code. The law of Christ involves submission to a person. Huge difference. When we bear one another's burdens and when we restore that one that has been overtaken in a sin, we are fulfilling the law of Christ, meaning we have come in, into submission to the expectation of a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not there to browbeat anyone with a code of ethics. We're not there to point out, brother, sister, you've broken this commandment, this commandment, this commandment, and this one. We are there to obey first and foremost ourselves the law of Christ in loving that person. And yes, indeed, sometimes love is tough. Sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes it pricks and makes us bleed. But at every point, it proves helpful. The law of Christ, fulfilling it, is being in submission to Him to perform these very things. What prevents this from happening? And by this, I mean what prevents a spiritually minded person from restoring and from bearing someone else's burden? What most often prevents it is spiritual pride. And that's why Paul deals with it immediately. In verse 3, For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. It's interesting here, the word deceive in the original is only found here in the New Testament. And it literally, or not literally, but it can be interpreted by this thought, filling the mind with fantasies and persuading oneself of the existence of something that has no reality. If you think you are something, you're, when you are really nothing, you deceive yourself. If you are so high and spiritually minded that you can't humble yourself to bear the burden of a believer that needs your help in some way or another, or if you are so self-exalted that you can't 
humble yourself to get into the muck and the mire of a brother or sister who have found themselves overtaken in sin. If you see it as being so far above you, then you are in self-deceit, which is really nothing more than self-conceit. Spiritual pride. If you think yourself to be something when you're nothing, you've deceived yourself. That's why we began our service this morning by reading from Philippians chapter 2. Those verses still fresh in your mind. I want to go back to the verses that precede that where, where Paul writes, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you. And we read those verses that dealt with the humiliation of Jesus. His humility. He is God, and he set that aside momentarily, the equality that he had with God from eternity past, and he made himself of no reputation. That is the greatest display of humility that we will ever run across, the humiliation of the second person of the Trinity coming in the form of a servant. Humbling himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Aren't you thankful? Thank God it is true that Jesus Christ was not delusional. That he was not conceited. That he was not filled with spiritual pride. It's almost even irreverent to say those types of things about the perfect Son of God. But yet here we have in Scripture the example And so the question that is put before us, is the mind of Christ in you? Is it or is it not? The spiritually proud person shies away from this work because it's beneath them. When in reality, they're not suited for it at all. Moving on to the fourth verse, getting close to being done. But let each examine his own work. So first point, restoring an overtaken brother or sister. Second, bearing one another's burdens. Now lastly, each bears a responsibility for himself. Let each one examine his own work. Note this. As a believer, you are not to be looking solely into the lives of your brothers and sisters, trying to see sin in them so that you can run and point it out and restore them. First and foremost, examine your own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone some of your translations help in the interpretation of this and what it what it literally means and what it boils down to is do not compare yourself to other people and then exalt yourself because you see that you may or may not be doing a little better than them in this area or that examine your own work Compare you with you and then see how you're doing. Better yet, compare you with Scripture and see how you're doing. It makes no difference how I stack up against you. The difference is made with how do I stack up against the expectation of Scripture? How am I doing in these areas of restoring in these areas of bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ? How am I doing in this area of humility and having the mind of Christ dwell in me? Compare yourself with the expectation of Scripture, not with your brother or sister. Because when you compare yourself to someone else, two things are going to happen. You're either going to be 
self-deluded into thinking you're something when you're really nothing, or you're going to be so defeated because you see in them such spiritual maturity and growth. So you're going to lose both ways. And in the end, you're not profited at all. Examine your own work, and then you will have rejoicing in him in yourself alone and not in another. You can't say, man, I'm doing so much better than him. God must be pleased with me because he's a mess and I'm not. When in reality, you're a mess and I am too. We compare ourselves to scripture and examine our own work. Then we will have rejoicing in ourselves alone because then and only then God willing with much grace and mercy bestowed, we'll be able to see incremental process progress. Little by little, step by step. But let's deal with this last point before I close. This seeming contradiction. I don't know if you've ever seen these books that that want to bring out all the contradictions in the Bible and to prove that it's false. Almost every one of those books have these two verses in them. Bear one another's burden and then each shall bear his own burden. Is that contradicting? Not at all. How so? The words are different. Doesn't come across in English. Some translations distinguish the words as the New King James. One says burden, the other says load. But the word in the original language for the first, bear one another's burdens in verse 2, means an impossible weight to carry. The word load in verse 3 refers to a soldier's backpack that you can carry alone. The difference comes in in this way. There are burdens that we experience where we can rightly long for the help of other believers whether it is grief, whatever it may be. There are some burdens that are just too much for us. The body of Christ in obedience to Christ must encircle us and hold us up because the weight is just too much. But then there are other things that we must bear alone. And let me point out this distinction This load that is referred to in the fifth verse refers to those things where each of us are personally responsible before God. And what this means basically is you cannot rightly blame someone else for your own sin or for your own lack. There are things that you must bear responsibility before God and only you can bear them. Primarily your salvation before God. Your mama, your daddy, nobody, the church, nobody will be able to stand with you on the day of judgment and help you bear that burden. You must bear it before God alone. Oftentimes people come to me and say, I want you to be my accountability partner. My response to that is usually, are you accountable for yourself first? Because if you're not, then it's a futile effort. If you don't recognize that you have some responsibility to walk in obedience to the Lord first for yourself, then it isn't going to matter if you get me and a hundred other people to hold you accountable. If you haven't accepted accountability first and borne your own load, then it's all a vain effort. Some people want to put all the accountability on someone else. Hold me accountable. No, hold yourself accountable before God. Be responsible. When you meet that requirement, the church of God should rally around you and help you carry the weight. But before you pick up your backpack, before you take up your knapsack or your purse, whatever you want to call it, before you bear that weight of responsibility, you're wrong in going to look for help. 
And if you're having trouble picking up that small weight, get on your knees before God, plead, beg for repentance and help and grace and mercy. And when it comes and you feel now the ability, the willingness to examine your own work and bear that responsibility, go find someone to help you and tell them, I've taken the responsibility for my own actions before God, but will you help me? And I can tell you, I've never had anyone come to me in that way, but if they did, I would say, absolutely, I'll help you. I will help. Do all that I can to help you. Because you've done the first step. Contradictions? No. Distinguishing? Yes. Bear the unbearable burden for your brother that he cannot bear alone. But take responsibility yourself for those things that only you can do before God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would implant it in our hearts that it might do us good. Father, help us to be spiritually minded people, to be ready to help restore a brother or sister overtaken in sin to be ready and willing to bear the burdens of our brethren, to have first examined ourselves and have borne the responsibility that we alone can bear before you. God, help us in these things. We're weak. We're needy. We need the help of the Spirit at every point. In every, every direction we turn, we stand in need. Father, I pray that you would make known the burden-bearing ability of the Lord Jesus Christ to all present. He has borne our greatest burden. And even as we began our service this morning, we refer back to that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Oh God, may it be true of us here and now and not in that day alone. We pray and ask it in Christ's name. Amen.